Okay, you can take a seat. Once you find a seat, this All right. When I was uh, when I was about four or five years old, I remember one of my distinct memories. That's not me, actually. That's not me. I I wish it was. That kid is really cute. But that's actually uh, Nick found that it's actually very much like the straw hat that sat atop a kid-sized dresser, just a couple of feet from my bed. And I was convinced on many nights there was a real cowboy underneath that hat and that I was in real danger. And that fear was real to me, so real that I can still recall the boy-sized emotions. Here it is 50 years later and at 53, the fears are different, but they're just as real. They're just man-sized now. I fear lots of things. Being irrelevant or uninteresting, to be honest with you, just a moment of vulnerability. Being uninteresting or irrelevant on a Sunday morning is one of, at the top of that list. That may not be one you share. Actually, maybe you do. Most people are terribly petrified of public speaking. But I have many of the same fears that you do. I'm not crazy about going to the dentist. Spiders are not very high on my list. I don't like small spaces. And I have some unique fears. I fear borrowing things because I know I don't return them. So if I ask you to borrow something, do me a favor. Say no. Yeah, it'll just, it'll just add to this narrative in my life. But seriously, like, like you, I fear how things, I fear the same things you do. I fear how things will turn out for loved ones. I don't fear death as much as I fear growing old, wondering what those years will look like. If the moral decline in our culture does not turn around, I fear what a generation will bring, especially for followers of Jesus. Thinking about the ways to talk about fears. There's One way would be past, present, and future. We have fears related to our past, we have fears related to the now, and we have fears related to our future. Here's another way of thinking about fears. There are physical fears. Will I have enough money? Can I provide for myself and for others? Will my vocation be satisfying? Will I get cancer. Will I have an accident? There's physical pain. Another big category of fears is personal significance. Will I be remembered? Will my life make any difference? Um, what about my children and what will happen to my children as far as it's tied into how I feel about myself? Or maybe the fears that are significant to you and really to all of us are relationally contextualized. How will my relational world fare? Will I find a spouse? If I do, will my marriage work? Will I be alone? Will I be loved? Will friends 
stick with me? What will become of my children? Can I remain faithful to God throughout a whole life? When we look at these fears collectively, it's easy to realize that life on many levels presents to us a huge challenge, doesn't it? Life's challenging. Fear can lead to emotional collapse. It can lead to withdrawal. My uncle Clarence, he's passed now, but he spent the entire last half of his life completely disengaged from the world. Uh, he, He just lived primarily in his home, rarely going out, rarely going to family functions. Fear just dominated his life. Fear can bring tremendous insecurity. There is the perceived need to do everything I can to manage my life and control others so I can avoid pain. And misplaced fears can totally warp my judgment and lead to far-reaching decisions and conclusions. Fear can cause us to avoid risk. Now, I'm not talking about recreational risk like bungee jumping or jumping out of airplanes. If you don't hear me say anything else today, please realize there's enough to fear in life without having to do something crazy and stupid. This next passage in John is all about fear. And it's a simple story. There's not many verses, but this event helped Jesus' friends confront their worst fears. And in learning their lessons, we too can be set free from the power of fear to control us. If John's gospel is about reclaiming life, then it has to address our worst fears because indeed fear is a chief. It's a primary joy robber. So with that background, let me read these few verses. John chapter 6. It's page 891 in our Bibles. I'm going to begin at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come, these are the people Jesus had just fed in the feeding of the 5,000. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We confess our fears to you, and we confess our inability to do anything about them. 
without your help. We ask you to teach us and to educate us and to inspire us this morning. Might we see Jesus and might we be led to worship him? In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before I start to comment on these few verses, I'd like to take a moment and credit the life group that my wife and I participate in. We participate in one of the many life groups that meets during the week. It's a smaller gathering of, of, uh, of members and attenders of our church in order to, uh, uh, to figure out how to do this whole Christianity thing at a very personal level. And uh, what our group does is we actually study the, the story that leads up to this Sunday. And what I'm able to gather is a little bit like my research team. And I gain so much from that interaction. We have a professional counselor that's a part of that group. We have a terrific Bible teacher. We have some veteran Christians that are part of that group. And so I just want to give them credit right off the bat. Many of the thoughts that I gain uh, and share here on Sunday morning come from the interaction from that group. Well, if you've studied the Gospels, you know that Matthew and Luke tell the same story that John does. And Matthew and Luke, though, their focus is different. Both of them focus on the disciples and the lessons that the disciples learn. For example, Matthew focuses on, remember, Peter and Peter walking to the boat. But that is not John's focus. John's angle is that powerful, assuring, miraculous presence of Jesus. It had been an eventful day. The disciples took part in this amazing miracle, a feast that began with one boy's offering of a very small lunch. The food was multiplied, and the disciples picked up leftovers. It was a veritable feast. And now it's evening of that same day, and they had to cross the Sea of Galilee in order to get to Capernaum, which was their ministry base. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a real place. The Bible has real people, real places, and real geographical places. You see this beautiful picture of the Sea of Galilee. Mark Twain visited there in the 19th century. He tells about this in uh, Innocence Abroad. He says uh, he came to the Sea of Galilee and was looking for a ride on it. And so a boatman offered him a ride for the exorbitant price of $50, quite a bit of money back in that day. To that offer, Twain replied, I now see why Jesus chose to walk on the water. (laughs) All kidding aside, the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's like a big cup. It's in a depression surrounded by hills. And as one historian noted, when cool air rushes in from the southeast and displaces the warm, moist air over the lake, guess what happens? Yeah, that water is churned up, and it is a very quick, violent squall. Some of you who have boated on Lake Erie know that those kinds of squalls can come up very, very quickly, and in moments, 
your life can be in serious peril. Well, in our modern era, with the help of Jacques Cousteau and others, um, large bodies of water are no longer a mystery to us. But in the ancient world, the sea, the oceans, were a mysterious place. Now, for the neighboring Phoenicians, who were more seafaring, it wasn't as big a deal. But for the Jews, uh, the ocean and the sea was really a place of terror. Historian Ben Witherington said, ancient Jews associated large bodies of water with danger, drowning, and chaos. And that carried into the times of Jesus. He goes on to explain that for in the New Testament times, large bodies of water were thought to be the abode of ghosts and demons. So with this background, it's not surprising that when the disciples saw this mysterious figure traversing the water, look at their response. It says frightened here, I think Matthew says terrified. What's risen up from the depths of the sea? So for these friends of Jesus, you have three of their worst fears coming together in a single confluence. A sea threatening to drown them, utter darkness, and an unknown ghost-like figure coming towards them. Now, these were experienced fishermen. They were experienced boatmen. They didn't learn to boat yesterday. And they knew this lake. But at the point where they saw this figure, they had completely exhausted their experience. They exhausted all their own knowledge. And literally, they were becoming unglued. It's in that very moment that Jesus came to them. We get again a picture from the other gospel writers that he saw this entire thing unfold and in his own sovereign wisdom determined the exact time to come to them. But he was, it wasn't like he just saw it and then reacted. He wasn't unaware. And he speaks these words, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, it's imperative to note what Jesus doesn't say. He does not deny or try to get them to pretend that their fears are illusionary or not real. He doesn't say the fears aren't real. He doesn't guide them into some mind over matter, hocus pocus mental trick. He does not tell them to look inside and find some untapped reservoir of resolve. He doesn't dissect their fears. He simply identifies himself saying, it is I. Uh, the Greek meaning behind this expression is literally the words, I am. Now, according to D.A. Carson, uh, th this term, I am, would have made sense. It wouldn't have been strange or overly spiritual to the disciples, the disciples would have received this as a form of identification. Jesus saying, hey guys, this is me. 
And yet we have a little bit of a clue here. Because we will see over and over again, Jesus will repeat this same phrase, I am. He will disclose with each time he says it, he will disclose more of who he is, such as, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection. I am the way, truth, the way, the truth, and the life. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying your fears are real and you cannot overcome them with your own resources. But I am sovereign. I've seen you. I've watched you struggle. I know what your fears are. And I am greater than your fears. And I have the power to rescue you. They heard his voice. They then knew it was Jesus. Believed his words and welcomed him into the boat. It's a great time to ask this question. What are your worst fears? For you. Can you name them? Can you identify them? What are your worst fears? What is the answer to your greatest fears? It's the same answer that they received. It is the miracle of His presence. The miracle of His presence. Jesus had just showed His disciples His power to provide food. And they picked up 12 basketfuls after it was all said and done. I like this point that John Piper brings out. Um, When the scriptures use a number like that, oftentimes it's not random. It's not by chance. In this case, it seems quite clear that those 12 basketfuls in some ways related to the fact that there were how many disciples? There were 12 disciples. It is as if Jesus is saying to these 12 friends, when you pour yourself out for me, when you offer yourself for others, I will be enough for you. When it's all said and done, when it's all over, I will be there for you. And now, on the same day, I've done another miracle for you. In the total darkness on the sea. What's he saying? I think he's saying, I will let nothing separate me from you. And when you take me into your boat, look what happens. Another miracle. They arrive immediately at the desired place. If you go back and read Psalm 107, there seems to be a connection here to Psalm 107, where at the end of that psalm, the writer says, through all of these struggles, God, you brought us, and his struggles on the sea as well, you've brought us to your desired, our desired place. You've brought us to our desired place. Haven. Jesus is saying, I'll be with you in your deepest fears and I will rescue you. The plan may be different and what happens in the end may not look like it looks like you want it to look or how you think it'll turn out. But this is where the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God connects. He will bring you to your desired haven and it may be there that you're surprised. Yeah, this is where I want it to be the whole time. 
This I believe it to be the message for us today. Our fears, our enemies may have different names, but they were the same fears and longings of the disciples. And in the same way that Christ met them in their deepest fears, so Christ will meet you in your deepest fears and will bring you to the place of your desired haven. I hope that you picture and can see this morning that how you and I address our fears impacts everything. And I hope that you'll also see that we will never escape fear completely on this side of eternity. Why? Because according to the biblical story, we continually face the specter of uncertainty. We can't escape uncertainty while we live under this age, the age of the curse. We are still living under the curse. Now, Christ's death is in the process of reversing that curse, and it will be completely eliminated at His second coming. But until then, we still face the specter of uncertainty, and therefore fear is a reality for us. So whenever you see self-help books, even Christian books, with titles like Never Be Afraid Again, or Escape Your Fears from Other, Escape Your Fears Forever, or some other book promising you a utopia here and now, remember that's only a half-truth. That's only a half-truth. In this age, there will be real fears. And those fears help us recognize, by the way, our great need for Jesus. But the vision that we can carry into this life is that fear does not have to define us. It doesn't have to impact the trajectory of who we become and what we become. You know, one of my constant prayers from the time my children were little has been, Lord, help me to parent by faith. Parents know that there are a thousand things to be afraid of. And by the way, for those of you who are parents of little children, they don't, it doesn't change when they get older. For adult children, they're just bigger problems, bigger challenges. And And for parents, you soon realize you can't control your children's decisions and seeking to overly control those decisions from a place of fear will damage those relationships. Sometimes those decisions can create tremendous pain for you and for them. And so parents learn to commit their children to the sovereign care of Jesus. And and if you're in that crucible right now, listen for His voice. It is I. It is I. Don't be afraid. Sometimes it's the kids who are afraid for their parents. Maybe you're afraid for the condition of your parents' marriage. Maybe you're afraid for the condition of your parents' health. And seeking to manage or control those fears without Jesus is a surefire way to create division and dissension and confusion in your family. Sometimes we let that emotional toll 
that emotional toll of caring for elderly parents or trying to manage our parents' issues without Christ can take a tremendous emotional toll on us. And that is a place where we need to experience the presence of Christ and to hear His voice. It is I. Don't be afraid. Another way that fears affect who we become, some of us are very afraid of our financial future. We fear disappointing or failing our parents. And that can send you on a trajectory that leaves you financially secure. Financially, you've made it. But you're void. You're void of any relational intimacy or closeness. It might take years, but that is a relational train wreck waiting to happen. But it doesn't have to happen. If you're one of those individuals that you're, you find yourself obsessed with worry about the future and your vocation and finances and money and will I have enough, and it causes you to hoard, it obsesses, you obsess about it, invite Christ into those fears. Listen to the words of Jesus. It is I. Don't be afraid and experience freedom from those worries and step into what few Americans ever experience. It's called contentment. It's called satisfaction. It's called, I have enough. You realize how few Americans ever experience that and how few American Christians ever come to that place of being content. It's because we're afraid. And we're anxious and it. It, it makes us, it causes us to do like silly, crazy things. We need to invite Christ to speak to those fears. In a moment here, we're going to take communion together. And that's the most practical, most practical application that we have this morning of remembering Jesus through the bread, remembering Jesus through the juice. But let me mention a couple, one other commitment that I'd like you to consider this morning. As we begin this new ministry year, I want to urge you to freshly commit yourself to this gathering, this Sunday morning gathering where the people of God, for this particular expression of the body of Christ, come together. I also want to encourage you as a part of that fabric to commit to making a life group, a weekly commitment to one of our smaller groups, a part of the fabric of the way you live out and manifest your faith. I have to share this morning that I'm concerned that we are too easily distracted from these core commitments. I know there are many valid and legitimate things that many of you are a part of. But I also am concerned that sometimes we opt out for reasons less than we should. No doubt to have spiritual core commitments is countercultural, But we are called to be distinct. Yes, we're called to be engaged in the world, but we are also called to come out and be separate from the world. 
We're called to pursue a radically different path. And one of those things that we need is the core commitment of being with one another. You might think, you might think, and maybe because you've heard different appeals like this, you might think that the appeal stems from some sort of like meeting a legalistic minimum. Like I have to go to church to meet this sort of minimal legalistic way of, you know, uh, uh, not having others, you know, so that other, I fulfill others' expectations or, or fulfill God's minimal expectations. It's not what I mean at all. My appeal stems from what really happens here. When there's a gathering of the people of God, what should happen? It's not merely a lecture. This part of it is not merely a lecture. It's not merely a sermon. If by sermon you mean it's just information going from one brain to another brain. No. What happens when the body gathers, when His Word is, takes center place, when we remember Jesus through baptism and communion, what happens? He is here. He is here. Christ is here in the gathering of His people. And, and I just, friends, want to tell you, that cannot be easily replicated. Jesus said, where two or three gather together in My name, I am there. Paul said in Ephesians 3, when trying to describe this multidimensional love of God, its height, width, depth, breadth, how do we experience? How does that love of God move from being intellectual, um, abstract, theoretical? How does it move to being practical and real and concrete in my life? What does he say there? He says it happens when the saints come together. They help each other. They help bring color to what the love of God truly is. Christ manifests himself here. I mentioned our life group a little earlier. You know, what takes place in those weekly gatherings is just as real and just as powerful as what takes place here. Our study this past week was so rich. I was so inspired and, and my, my spirits were elevated when I left on Wednesday night. I often don't want to go. I often think, oh, what I, but every time I leave, so glad I was there. As a matter of fact, one part of what we did and one thing that life groups can do, that it doesn't work as well here, but we broke down into even smaller groups and we each took time to identify what our fears, just briefly, what our fears were. And then we took time to pray for each person and to pray that they would experience Christ speaking into that very fear. You can't replicate that, friends. You can't replicate that kind of community. You see, these are the kinds of experiences when they happen with consistency in your life, it begins to break fear's hold on you. You begin more and more to recognize that that ghost-like figure is actually Jesus. And you begin to recognize those small, still, calm words, it is I. Don't be afraid. Nick, you guys can work your way up.
And I know we've given you quite a bit here to think about this morning. And I'm sure that the disciples, as they reflected on their experience, I'm sure they continued to draw meaning and power and life from what took place on that night. We're going to take the bread and the juice this morning. The ushers are going to begin to release you. And just take the bread and take the juice. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a member or not a member here, we invite you to take communion. If, uh, if you've not yet decided, you, you can begin to release them, Tim. They can, they can start. Um, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd, uh, don't yet take the bread and the juice. Feel free to come on up and observe and see uh, what happens here. And, uh, but the reason is, is because when you take that bread and when you take that juice, you are saying that Christ and the presence of Christ has come into my life. And that's what we say and what we remember. We remember Christ's death, that his death was a substitutionary atonement. It covered over for our sins. Jesus said to take the bread and the juice until I return. And therefore, that's why we're doing it. Again, just hang on to it. We're going to take it together. I want to share one last thing here as we take, as we uh, prepare our hearts for communion. I think there's a larger theological landscape that's happening here. John is giving us some clues about the Messiah. If you were a first century Jew, you talked a lot about this great banquet at the end of the age. Jews in the first century believed that when the Messiah would come, he would defeat their enemies and he would launch a new golden age of prosperity and it would be launched with an overflowing, overabundant messianic banquet. John's been leaving us little markers that indeed the Messiah had come. Not only does Christ give wine in abundance, remember the story at the wedding, how the vats were filled to the brim with a new wine? Not only does He provide food with plenty to spare, Remember the feeding of the 5,000, as we said, and the leftover fragments, the leftovers, with plenty to spare. So not only does he give wine in abundance, not only does he provide food with plenty to spare, but this Messiah also treads on water. He walks on water. And to see the significance of this, we must go backwards to the book of Job in chapter 9. And there in chapter 9, Job is describing who God is and what God does. In verse 4, he says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. In verse 5, he says, God is the one who removes mountains. In verse 6, he says, God is the one who shakes the earth out of its place. In verse 7, God is the one who commands the sun and seals up the stars. And in verse 8, he says, God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. 
This is Jesus, the one who is greater than all of our fears.